Hey everyone, just a quick note before we get started that ACSA's ninth annual convention and vendor trade show in New Orleans is right around the corner at the end of July. Head to AmericanCraftSpirits.org to register, see the full convention schedule, learn more about pre-convention opportunities, and much, much more. We hope to see you there. Thanks. I, I think I get away with a lot because my number one target is me. And, you know, and so by making fun of just kind of how, you know, ludicrous my own life is, and, and any of us could do that because, you know, all of our lives are just ridiculous. And, you know, by, but by really focusing there, then when I when I turn it to something that people care about, they're, they're like, eh, okay, yeah, we'll, we'll let them get away with that. From the American Craft Spirits Association and Craft Spirits Magazine, this is the Craft Spirits Podcast. I'm John Page, and today on the program, Distilling Better Mental Health. Our guest today is Matt Vogel, the Executive Director and Co-Founder of the National Mental Health Innovation Center at the University of Colorado, and the keynote speaker at ACSA's ninth Annual Convention and Vendor Trade Show in New Orleans this July 21st. The title for his keynote is Distilling Better Mental Health and Crafting Support in Volatile Times. Matt brings a unique perspective to the address. He's also a comedian, and he nearly lost his life to a suicide attempt 20 years ago. He eventually decided to tackle the stigma by talking publicly about his struggles with bipolar disorder and attempted suicide. His address will be humor-driven and tailored specifically to the unique realities and challenges facing the craft spirits industry. In this episode of the podcast, we discuss how he's preparing for the keynote, his return to stand-up comedy and how he sees a parallel between comics and distillers, and simple advice for distillers to consider when it comes to mental health. To start our conversation, I asked him how he walks the line between being funny and talking about mental health. It's a it's a real fine line, um, and, it, and it's gotten even trickier now um, than when I was doing comedy the first time around 13 years ago. And so, you know, now that now that we've, you know, kind of have this, um, you know, the cancel culture and or, you know, whatever you want to, uh, you know, characterize it as, but, you know, we've had the Me Too movement, we had Black Lives Matter, we've had a lot of things that have really been um, opportunities for reckoning with with comedians um, about, you know, what we can and can't talk about. And so it becomes even more complicated when you talk about something that's pretty universally painful, which is mental illness and suicide and those sorts of things. Um but I believe that um, it's really important that we not run away from that line. Um, and, and you are, it's just accepting that you are going to walk really close to a line and probably every now and then you're going to tiptoe across it. Um, but I think it's super important because it's, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a part of the human condition um, struggling with our own, you know, mental health. And, and I think that in my experience, I found it disarming by talking about my own experience first, where people say, okay, if he can be, um, you know, kind of, uh, you know, self-revelatory in that sense, and talk about this, you know, darkest moment of his life when he was going to make a suicide attempt, we're going to cut him a little bit of slack. And then I think the other thing is that people, um, they tend to understand pretty quickly that, um, that there's a real purpose to it. It's not that I'm making light of anything. I mean, just the opposite. It's that we want people to talk about mental health. That, that's, that's really at the essence of everything we're trying to do. Um, with this, you know, talk at um, ACSA, um, and but just in general in the mental health field, is that we want people to talk about it. And if it's if it feels threatening, if it feels like, hey, 
I, um, I have to be really nervous and, and careful about choosing my words and everything, then people aren't going to talk about it. They'll just change the subject and talk about something else. And we've seen that, you know, with race and people, you know, are like, or, or they're afraid, you know, do I say African-American? Do I say black? And, and they're not sure. And so, well, let's just talk about the weather instead, because then I'm not going to risk offending somebody. So by using humor, it makes it much more accessible and, and easier to talk about. You must also just kind of be really good at, at like reading a room and reading what, you know, what people, not what they're thinking, but like, I'd imagine you're able to look around and go, okay, it's start, I'm starting to get over that line or not. Totally, totally. And, you know, and that's where my experience doing standup um, comes in because every crowd is different, you know, and even, um, you know, this last weekend when I was in Louisville, you were seeing, you know, just, just the difference between like a early Friday show and a late Friday show, completely different uh, crowds. And, you know, um, even if they, even if they look the same, um, you know, from stage. And so there's a, there's a certain amount of, you know, those first five minutes for any comic is really just about figuring out the room and, you know, what do they want me to be? And, you know, it's kind of like a, a waiter who comes up to a table and says, okay, you know, do these people want me to be, you know, like the snarky, sarcastic guy, do they want me to be over the top and silly, or do they want me to be invisible? And, and yet, you know, you have to, you have to read that and then give them what they want. And, and so, you know, you throw some things out, like, are they laughing at dirty stuff? Are they laughing at, you know, political stuff or, you know, whatever it might be, but you're just trying to get a sense for them and then adjust your act um, accordingly. Or, you know, even stuff like if they're low energy, you know, I'm going to have to work harder. I'm going to have to be higher energy to, just to bring them up, you know, with me if you, you know, because you can feel if they're tired and things like that. Yeah. So I, I, I was going to talk about this later, but since you brought it up, the, uh, the, the shows in Louisville, uh, how, how'd they go? It was great. You know, I, um, I, I think, as you know, I, I'd stepped away from comedy for quite a while and, uh, and was focusing on public speaking and on my, on my, uh, you know, day job, if you will, in, in mental health. And, um, and it, it was, it was good to be away from comedy, um, but also good to come back. And, you know, it's sort of, you know, there, there's, um, you know, Rodney Dangerfield did the same thing. He quit for years and years and then, uh, and then, you know, came back when he was, um, you know, uh, when he retired from his, his uh, real job and, you know, his kids were grown. Um, and I, I'm not coming back with any sort of intent of where it's going to go, but, um, you know, but I, I just miss that, um, that, you know, writing jokes and the process of connecting, uh, you know, with a crowd in a humorous way and and just the creativity that that goes with it so i, I you know i started doing sets um here in denver at the local comedy club at comedy works and my buddy josh blue who's a headliner um he was on america's got talent last year and um you know he called me up and he's like hey i'm going to louisville you know do you want to come down and and uh do 30 minutes in front of me and uh for five shows and i was like you know hell yeah <laughs> you know just sort of a it felt so right when he when he asked that and and it was great i mean just really surpassed my expectations and uh, was really able to to connect with the crowd and 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 nice to to be able to feel like hey i still got it um even though the world has changed so much in in 13 years and that i was able to adapt um you know because because comedy really is a whole lot different now yeah well we were we were talking about that recently about the the, the realities now are with uh you know, folks getting like comedians getting attacked on stage. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> is, is, right. is that ever a fear of yours? Well, I mean, you know, I was in Louisville, so I'm like, all right, I'm the only person in this room without a gun. And, uh, you know, I, I do have strategic high ground, but that's, you know, yeah. consolation. So, um, you know, and, and so you, you, it's always in the back of your mind and, and there's one of two ways you can, 
you can handle it. You can say, okay, I'm, I'm just going to play this safe and, and I'll do jokes about, you know, horse racing and, you know, and whiskey, but I'm not going to touch Mitch McConnell or I'm not going to, you know, um, go anything, you know, even remotely political. Um, I don't think that's the way to do it. And I, and I, it, it, it makes me cringe a little bit when I see a lot of uh, comics starting to, to kind of run um, and live in fear of crowds because um, we have to take it back. I mean, that's comedy has always been about, you know, pushing boundaries um, not intentionally, uh, I'm not talking about intentionally uh, offending people, but it really is about, you know, going to those places where we might not go otherwise and creating that environment where, hey, it's, it's safe to talk about anything here. We've given control now to the audiences in many ways, which has, you know, empowered them to, you know, to um, go on social media and, you know, say, I'm going to destroy your career because I didn't like this joke you did, or I'm going to come on stage and, you know, and attack you. And, and I just don't think you can, you can, uh, you know, live like that. And, and I think, you know, in the long run, it's just going to kill comedy. You know, we, we don't need a bunch of, you know, Dane Cooks, you know, people up there being, you know, no offense, Dane, but, um, you know, it, it's, uh, you know, the, the diversity of, of comedy is one of the things that makes it so special, you know, and, and so you need, you know, you know, comedians that are, that are doing edgy stuff, people that are playing it, you know, safer. Um, uh, I've never had like a, an issue where I felt like I was, um, you know, at risk, you know, even down, you know, like, like I didn't, you know, I did jokes about Mitch McConnell and I, you know, I did jokes about horse racing and, you know, came up and there was some guy who was a VP of Churchill Downs, you know, afterwards. And he was like, oh, I think, you know, it was hilarious, you know, and, you know, been, you know, doing jokes about, you know, uh, horses doing cocaine before the Derby and all this stuff. <laughs> and, uh, and he loved it. And, but I, but I, I, I think I get away with a lot because, my number one target is me. And, you know, and so by making fun of just kind of how, you know, ludicrous my own life is, and, and any of us could do that, because, you know, all of our lives are just ridiculous. And, you know, by, but by really focusing there, then when I when I turn it to something that people care about, they're, they're like, eh, okay, yeah, we'll, we'll let them get away with that. Do, yeah, I mean, do you give me the example, I guess, of how you start a, a comedy set and make fun of yourself? <laughs> so um you know lots of different ways i'm i'm uh, i'm you know i struggle with my weight and so i you know i, I talk um a lot about that um and I, I took a huge risk um that i i don't think i ever would have before when i was down in louisville and i did almost 10 minutes talking about a surgery i had last year for hemorrhoids and um and it's like well, god who, who's gonna talk in public about that um, but when you look at the data, it's, you know, it's about 60% of, you know, of adults have or, or have had uh, hemorrhoids. So I'm like, or okay. know somebody, yeah. yeah. Or know somebody. And so yeah. like, I'm, and, and this is like the most painful thing I had ever gone through in this, in this surgery. So I'm like, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to talk about it. And, and it resonated with people. I, you know, I was worried that they were just going to be like, no, nah, that's, that's too much. It's, you know, it's just gross. It's nothing else. Um, but it, it ended up being my strongest material, um, for the, for the whole thing, you know, just cause, um, you know, I, I think partly people could relate and partly it was just like, wow, this, this guy's kind of bearing his soul up here. Yeah. And, and then you can get away with the McConnell and the, yeah, exactly. The, the horse cocaine. Jokes for sure. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> okay. Um, so I, I guess let's switch gears back to, um, you know, the, the topic of mental health, um, I rewatched your TED talk just just today, actually, before we we uh, hopped on this Zoom. Um, and you know, you talk about writing a suicide note and buying a gun, um, but but you say that you said then this was 2018, I think, that your your rock bottom wasn't that it was it was accessing care 
and you used a photo of, uh, of a traffic jam as like an example of what our mental health system is like. I, I'm assuming that that traffic jam hasn't gotten any better. It's gotten worse. And uh, so, you know, when I, when I made my suicide attempt, to, you know, it was actually about 20 years ago. And um, at that time I had, you know, uh, uh, the, the biggest challenge was I could get an appointment, but I couldn't get an appointment that I could afford. And so, you know, that, that was the big issue then that, you know, providers just weren't taking commercial insurance. And a lot of people think that, you know, if, if you have a job and you've got, you know, uh, health insurance through your employer, that you have great mental health benefits. And that hasn't always been true. I mean, very often it's the very rich and the very poor that have the best access because, you know, with the poor, we have this Medicaid, you know, safety net system of community mental health centers and then the rich can pay out of pocket. But what's happened is, um, you know, for about the last 15 years, the mental health workforce has been shrinking. And so we, every year we have more people leaving the field and going into it. So that's, that's one force. Um, then on top of that, we've been uh, making progress around things like stigma and getting people more comfortable talking about mental health, which is what we want. But the downside there, if there, you know, if you can call it a downside is that then it means more people are comfortable asking for help and saying, okay, I've been struggling with this depression for years. Now I, I'm feeling comfortable. I'm not afraid of losing my job. So I'm going to, I'm going to ask for help. So we have demand going up and the supply of providers going down. So, so that problem was worsening and then the pandemic hit and it all just went to hell and, and, and became worse on just a rapidly accelerated rate because then we had this flood of providers out of the system, you know, just like, you know, with the great resignation, it really hit healthcare hard um, and hit mental health in particular. Um, people just, you know, it, it, the, they, they couldn't keep up. Um, they were seeing their wait list go from a month to five months to be able to get patients in. They're getting angry phone calls on their voicemail every single day, you know, from desperate people. Um, and and they get burned out, you know, and then they're seeing their patients on, on uh, you know, a televideo. And, um, and so they, they, they quit. And, and then the results of the pandemic and what that did to people's mental health, you know, and, you know, you've, you've seen the articles, we've seen, you know, just these um, skyrocketing rates of depression and anxiety, in particular, um, uh, suicide uh, attempts and completions way up, overdose deaths, overdose ho hospitalizations, all these markers of, you know, poor mental health in our society have gone up. So now we've got one hell of a mess, you know, that, that we have um, this massive, massive supply and demand problem. And, and one of the things that I've always been so frustrated at is that, you know, um, you know, if you look at, you know, basic economics, when you have a supply and demand imbalance, there's exactly two ways you can, you can handle that. You can, you know, force, uh, focus on increasing the supply or reducing the demand. In mental health and in medicine, um, we've always focused on, uh, on increasing the supply. How do we get more therapists? How do we get more psychiatrists to go into the field? Well, you know, th these are really tough jobs and, you know, they don't pay well. And um, all day long, you're listening to, you know, to brutal stories and, and so we can spend zillions of dollars, which, you know, I've seen here in Colorado, they were, you know, um, when we were talking about what are we going to do about mental health, so much of the conversation went back to, oh, well, let's do student loan forgiveness and, you know, find these ways to entice more people to go into psychiatry and psychology. But the problem is you're going to spend, you know, a, a zillion dollars to have a modest effect 10 years from now. We don't have 10 years. You know, people are dying at an accelerated rate right now. we got to focus on the demand and how do we um, make it so that people, um, 
don't need to access providers um, if they're you know not at a high that high level of uh, of sickness. Um, you know, can we keep the ones who are doing okay now? Can we keep them well so that they don't you know develop a disease that requires a high level mental health professional? Those that you know might be struggling with you know being depressed or you know. Um, uh, struggling with uh, worrying, but they don't have a diagnosable condition. Peer supports usually, you know, can be a, a great way to help those folks. Or doing things like helping them get their sleep under control and meditating and and exercising and eating better. Um, and then um, focusing on the people who are in care as as that kind of third group and saying, okay, these folks were sick enough that they needed to see a psychiatrist. Can we get them through the system faster than we're doing that right now? Can we make care more efficient? Because mental health is, you know, far and away the most inefficient discipline in all of medicine. You know, um, if you have an infection, you go to your primary care doc once, 15 minutes, you get your antibiotics, you're out of there. And that's it. You have depression. You might be seeing, you know, your, your therapist for an hour a week for nine months. And, and so um, you're clogging up a, a slot that somebody else needs. So if we can shrink that nine months to six months and do that with every provider everywhere in the country, we, we've bought ourselves a lot of new capacity. So we got to focus, I think, on all three of those things and, and say, how can we work with the providers we do have rather than spending all of our energy focusing on the providers that we don't have? Yeah. Uh, and I, I guess without giving away, like, you know, what you're going to touch on in your keynote, um, you know, why, why is it important for craft distillers to be thinking about mental health of their own, their, yeah. their employees and um, you know, what, what, what can they get out of your, your keynote? So I, I think that um, I think the craft distillers are in a lot of ways, like stand-up comics. That's one of the reasons I was really excited um, to do this talk and to come down uh, to New Orleans in, in July Um in the in the sense that we're artists and and that there's a a, a big misconception from the public that um, and, and I and I, I talked about this um, in my TED talk I I've actually never seen it because um, I can't watch myself but um, I get it but I, but I do remember the the one of the lines um, that you know because I talk about this a lot which is that there's a, a huge difference between being funny and uh, being happy. And everybody assumes that comics are happy because they're always laughing, they're always telling jokes and, and all that stuff. Um, there's a, so much pain in comedy and, 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 and people don't see that. I think it's really similar in the, in, in the craft distilling that people think, oh my God, you're doing this dream job, you're artists, you're making this you know, stuff, putting it out there for public consumption. People love uh, you know, the, the stuff that you're making. You get to uh, you know, mess around with you know, different uh, you know, different ways of aging and, you know, what kind of barrels you're using. And, um, and you know, I mean, it's, it, it's drinking, it's like working in a bar, you know, it's, it's just fun. And, and that makes it really hard when you're struggling, because, you know, not only are you hurting, but you kind of got to keep that public, you know, perception of, yeah, this is really great going. And that's, there carries a whole lot of pain with it. And you look at what's happening right now, supply chain stuff, inflation, and how that's, you know, uh, affecting, you know, distillers and, and, you know, just the people that I've talked to already, I'm hearing the same kind of things. They said, you know, for our, for our stuff that, you know, $75, $80 price point, you know, for our spirits is, is close to fixed, you know, we can't just keep pushing that up, but the cost of our bottles, the cost of our shipping, the cost of, you know, our labels of everything that we're doing is going up. And so, you know, what does it do? Our, our profit margins are, are shrinking and, 
and, you know, making us wonder, like, you know, am I going to be able to keep these people that work for me employed? And, you know, and are, are they going to lose their houses if we go under? That's a lot to carry around. Yeah. And the, the supply chain stuff, I just can't imagine because it's it's people who are it's distillers who are changing the, the bottle because they it's the only bottle they can get for yeah. that time being. Um, and then on top of that, there's just, you know, there's more and more folks coming on. So there, and the shelf space isn't exactly increasing. So the competition is just continuing to get even stronger. Yeah. And, and I think like people out of the industry, um, you know, they might hear something about bottles and be like, oh, you know, boo-hoo, you know, who cares? You know, you still got a bottle, but it's a big deal. I mean, you know, when somebody's setting up their distillery, they're, they're giving a lot of thought to, you know, what bottle is going to be, you know, distinctive and, and really set us apart. And, you know, it, that it's going to stand out on the shelf. That's not going to take up too much shelf space that, you know, we're going to annoy the, uh, you know, the liquor store owners, but in really coming up with the right thing. And it, it, it's this artistic choice all of a sudden you're forced to just take whatever, you know, and, all right, I can get mason jars, cool, put it in there, whatever. And, um, and it's, it's really kind of a, a betrayal of a lot of the excitement and the stuff that, you know, they were experiencing when they were first getting into it. And, and it may not seem like a big deal to people out of the industry, but, you know, it, it's, a, I, you know, I think those little things are, are, are really huge because all of a sudden it's like, this isn't what I dreamed about this, you know, this isn't fun anymore. Yeah. Uh, I'm curious in in your day job, uh, what kind of successes are are you all finding? Um, you know, just in general these days. Yeah, so I, I, there, there's a number of things. I mean, we are seeing um, you know some encouraging stuff with employers who are focusing on the wellness of their employees and and focusing on it in a different way. And you know, I I, I have done a lot of you know talks like at you know at companies and. Um, you know, for their, for their workforce. And, and oftentimes what I've heard in the past was people saying, you know, this is great because you came here for mental health week, but the only time that this company cares about mental health week is during, or mental health is during mental health week. And, you know, the rest of the year, um, it sucks to work here. And, you know, they're, they're slave drivers and they're, you know, just terrible uh, people to work for and they don't care about our, our, our well-being at all. And I would hear that a lot. And I think employers are starting to get it that, you know, to really take care of your workforce means a whole lot more than just, you know, ensuring that I've got mental health benefits. Because as we were talking about, you know, having your health insurance cover 10 visits or whatever may not mean much if there's no providers that you can get in to see. And so how are we taking care of the workforce in other ways? And and that usually comes from manage starts with management walking the walk, and and that's just something you you saw all the time that wasn't happening. I'm seeing that happening um, more and more, where people are really um, it's such a competitive environment for for labor, um, and people are just you know recruiting and retaining top talent is is so critical, and so they're saying yeah people want more than just a paycheck, and you know they want to be able to have work life balance. They want to be able to feel like their mental health is valued. They want to be able to feel like they don't have to lie if they have to go to a therapy appointment. Um, they want to have opportunities that, hey, I, I need I need to go clear my head and meditate for 10 minutes. We can do that. And, and that stuff's part of the culture. Maybe we, you know, start a staff meeting with, you know, with meditation or, or, or you know, things like that. And I, more and more employers are doing that. I, the other thing. Go ahead. I was going to say, I, I heard uh, this was outside of the distilling industry, but I, I heard an example recently of uh, someone's company scheduled a work-life balance, like webinar, get together, happy hour or something. 
that was going to uh, be on a Friday at 6 p.m. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like, it, it, it's exactly, it's exactly the problem. Um, I was using the analogy, you know, when people are asking me about workplace stuff about, um, you know, corporations um, efforts to get their employees to lose weight. And so, so many companies would say, okay, we're going to give everybody a Fitbit. And if you, you know, do your 10,000 steps, you know, you get $20, you know, off on your health insurance premium or, you know, things, things like that, you know, some small incentive. And those programs never work. Um, you, you know, the, the workforce doesn't lose weight or if they do, they might lose a little bit and then they gain it right back. And the reason that those programs don't work, they're, they're, I think there's really two reasons. One is that it, it puts the sort of the blame uh, on the employee and saying, okay, you're not, um, you know, you're fat because you're lazy and you're not walking enough. So, so the solution is for you to go walk more. And, um, and so it puts it all on you. Well, you know, if you're, if you're struggling with that and you're feeling lousy about yourself, having somebody tell you that it isn't going to help you. It's not, that, that's not motivating. It's, you know, it's just shaming. The other part is, um, and this is the, the, the critical part is that if I'm, if, you know, if I have this company and I'm telling everybody lose weight and um, you know, here's your Fitbit, but I'm still, uh, I've created this environment where we're all workaholics. People are working until eight at night. They're going home. They're working until three in the morning. They're, you know, expected to be on email at all hours. It starts going off at five. Are you going to be um, getting 10,000 steps during the day? No. You, you know, if you did have the time, you're going to be too tired. Yeah. And so why would I take the stairs if, you know, if I'm exhausted, I only slept three hours last night, I'm going to hop in the elevator. Why would I take the time to make a nice salad for lunch when I know I'm going to have to work through lunch and grab a Snickers bar? And so the it's easy for the employers to say, well, you know, we gave them the Fitbits and then they didn't lose weight. So it's their fault, you know, um, but it's like, nope, it's yours. Um, it's real. The onus is really on the company to create, you know, opportunities and to, to look back and say, have we created, you know, an insane environment? And to take that really hard look, and it's 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 hard for you know executives and CEOs to do, but but you have to look at it as honestly as you can. Yeah. Well, what what is your um, if if you had to just give uh, the distilling audience that's listening to this just you know one bit of advice on one thing that they can or should do to. Uh, help their own mental health or, you know, kind of instill that culture at their, at their distillery, what would it be? Drink your own product on the job. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, sorry. No, I um, it, honestly, I, people always, I get asked that question a lot. And um, the number one answer is, is meditation. Uh, you know, meditation is this wonder drug that we have um, that's free. It's as effective as um, taking antidepressants. Um, and it's pretty easy once you, once you learn it. I mean, this doesn't have to be like, you know, hippy dippy, you know, transcendental meditation and, you know, you're sitting, you know, crisscross applesauce with a ponytail and, you know, incense going, we're talking about just, but like, it, could know, it, could it could be, it could be, yeah. yeah, if that's your thing, yeah, go for it. But like yeah. in the workplace, um, there's no reason not to, not to start every meeting with, you know, 60 seconds, two minutes of just box breathing and we're going to slow our breathing down inhale for three, hold it for three, exhale for three, hold it for three. Um, and you do that. And it's amazing the, the dividends that it will pay off, not only for individuals, but also for the company, because, and, and, you know, this is all scientifically, you know, validated, you know, study after study, um, you, people are going to be more present. They're going to listen better. 
they're going to have more attention to detail. They're going to be more focused. Um, they're you know going to be less likely to call in sick and, and miss work. Um, if you just do you know a, a little practice like that, you know who doesn't have two minutes at the beginning of a staff meeting, um, you know. And so so I I like to tell um, organizations just to pick something small like that. You don't have to build a whole meditation room. You can get to that later. Um, but, you know, just little things like, you know, making, you know, meditation part of your culture or, you know, um, you know, giving people, you know, an, an extra break. We, you know, we let the smokers go outside, but not let everybody go outside, you know, and, and encourage it. Like, you know, uh, I, I worked with one company and they set up a thing where four times a day, everything shuts down. You don't schedule meetings during those, you know, 10 minute breaks and they just go outside, walk around the building, whatever, clear your head. Um, you know, so it doesn't have to be hard and it doesn't have to be expensive, at least get going. That's our program for today. Thanks again to Matt Vogel for joining us. To see his keynote address at ACSA's 9th Annual Convention and Vendor Trade Show in New Orleans on July 21st, make sure to visit AmericanCraftSpirits.org and register now. While you're there, you can also check out the entire convention schedule, download our app, and more. We hope to see you there. We'll be back in a few weeks. Until then, thanks for listening, and cheers. Cheers.